Good morning. So it's a win already. <laughs> the uh, my name is Mark Grappengator. Uh, I am a church planter here in Denver, and I've been with you guys before. And it's a pleasure to be with you again. It's really exciting to um, uh, yeah to be able to be here to be able to share God's word with you this morning. Um, I know there's a lot of transition happening here at Scum. There's a lot of transition that happens in many of our lives for lots of different reasons. And so we're talking about transitions today. It's going to be a fun one. It's not normal that you kind of jump right into the middle of Romans, but that's what we're doing this morning. Romans 6, most commentators believe, is kind of an, a side conversation that Paul is having. After going through chapter 5, and he kind of has to step aside from his line of thought to kind of cut off where some of maybe our, our logic and our thinking is going to go by what he's explained to us already. In chapter 5, he talks about grace that comes through Jesus Christ. It's this free gift it's abundant grace that abounds wherever sin increases. So no matter how much sin there is in our life, God's grace is greater. God's grace covers that sin. Now, it's very easy for us to follow this logic then and go, well, if there's more grace when I sin more, maybe I should sin more so I have more grace. But Paul understands our thinking. And he says, no, that's not how grace works. Grace doesn't fall to our logic. Grace is illogical in and of itself, and it can't be, it can't follow that same line of thinking. Grace, by its very nature, is illogical. Grace is undeserved favor. It's, it's love, it's mercy that we have received, not for anything that we have done, but by the free gift of God himself through Jesus Christ. So this morning, we're looking, there I did it, right? Yeah. Uh, this evening, we're looking at Romans 6, uh, verses 1 through 14. Um, I have the, the ESV, is that what we have up there too, I think? Yep. So I'm going to read it for us, and then we're going we're gonna to dive in. Paul writes, What then shall we say? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us have, who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body and make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, 
But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. This is the word of the Lord. So I grew up in a dance studio, quite literally. Uh, in Edmond, Oklahoma, my mom owned a dance studio just off Broadway School of Dance. Uh, we did competitions and all sorts of things. Ballet, you may know, is the foundation of all dancing. And I took ballet as well as every other class that was offered because my mom was a teacher. That's what you do, right? You grow up in a restaurant, you clean dishes. I grew up in a dance studio. I took dance classes. It's very interesting. As you learn ballet, there are five positions. First, second, third, fourth, fifth. There's a number of other moves that you make. But these are kind of the foundation. Now, if you were to learn these five positions and how you put your feet, as my almost three-year-old has done, this wouldn't necessarily make you a great dancer. Because it's not so much the position that you find yourself in, but how you transition between the different positions and how you move your body through space and time and to a tempo that really make you a wonderful, beautiful dancer. And that's when it becomes art. That's when it becomes beautiful, right? Someone who studied dance all of their life knows the, the hours of practice that it takes to get their hands in the right position, to point their toes in such a way that creates beauty, that creates art. It's not so much in the positions that they have learned, but it's how they move and transition between those positions. Life is full of transitions, whether it's moving, whether it's changing jobs, whether it's leaving home or returning home, whether it's starting school or graduating from school, sometimes even just getting off the couch in the evening to make it to bed is this great transition and trial that we undergo. Transitions are a major part of life. And unfortunately, the bad news is transitions are a major part of our Christian life as well. The Christian life is one giant transition that we call repentance. Repentance is turning away from our old life of sin to the new life that's offered in Jesus Christ. Martin Luther, the great reformer, said, All of life is repentance. We are in this state of transition our entire Christian lives between how we lived our old life and how we live our life in Christ. And though he doesn't use the word uh, specifically repentance, Paul is talking about this in Romans 6. He gets to the point of the gospel uh, explanation and he sees where the logic could take us that we should continue in sin so that grace may abound and he stops us dead in our logical hearts and our sinful hearts and says no, that's not where we go. And he knows that that is our inclination, that we are going to continue down that sinful path, but he also, or because he knows that repentance is hard work, the transition of life from our old way of life into this newness of life that we have in Christ is hard work. And Paul is a realist. He understands this difficulty. 
but he also understands the depths of the gospel and how when we are connected to the person of Jesus Christ who has already faced the ultimate transition from life to death and been resurrected again, he knows the power that that can hold in our lives. Now maybe you're here this evening and you're not a Christian and you're checking this out for, this, for the first time Maybe just a few times in, you're wondering, what is the Christian life about? Well, it's, it's a major transition. <laughs> Maybe you've been a Christian for a little bit now, and you're still wondering what it's about. Maybe you've been a, tra- a Christian for most of your life, and you're wondering, is this what life is about? And so this morning, we're... Oh, did it again. This evening, I do have good news for you. Paul gives us a dance. He gives us a dance of repentance that we can follow so that this life of transition, we know how to, how to manage it, we know how to walk through it, we know how to deal with it when the challenges of our old lives, when we're faced with the challenges of our old lives as we move into this newness of life in Christ. It's a dance of repentance that's characterized by three things. Death, resurrection, and life. And it's not a one-time move that we do, right? It's not a prayer that we pray, but it's a dance that we continue to do and perform our entire lives. So let's look at this dance. The first step in this dance is death. I'm going to read the verses 1 through 7 again. Paul says, what shall we then say? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Paul explains what he's talking about here with the image of baptism. And we usually associate baptism as being something very celebratory, right? It's a newness of life that comes, whether we're celebrating infant baptism or whether we're celebrating uh, adult and confessional baptism. This is a joyful occasion usually in the church. But here Paul is connecting the image of baptism to words like dead, death, crucifixion, buried. And this is really along the lines of, of the Greek word for baptism in extra-biblical sources uh, and throughout uh, the New Testament as well. Baptism means washing. It means cleansing. It means purging. When ships sink and people drowned, that's called baptism. In Mark ten thirty-eight, Jesus refers to his own death as a baptism. Because Christians are people who have died with Christ and are continually dying. What are we dying to? We're dying to sin. 
There's two understandings of sin. There's the understanding of it being those acts that we commit, those sins that we commit that are apart from how God would want us to live our lives. But there's also sin, that power that reigns and rules over us. But Paul says, in Christ, we have died to sin. We are free, we are cleansed, we are purged. Death really is the ultimate transition, isn't it? When we lose loved ones, we know that we will never see them again on this side of our own death. We put up remembrances, we have memorial services, perhaps we keep photos and keepsakes, perhaps we argue about inheritances and the, the things that belong to them because we want to be able to remember those people that were dear to us. When my grandma Grappengator died in 2016, she had fought a long uh, battle with Alzheimer's and she had lived in uh, a comfort care, it was called the Comfort Care Home in Newton, Kansas, this little blip on the map of all places. They enjoyed her presence there. She was a sweet woman all of her life. And so to remember her as she was one of the very first residences, uh, uh, residents of the Comfort Care House, they renamed it Mama G's House in remembrance of her. It was a very kind, very sweet thing. It was also kind of odd because none of us knew her as Mama G. I never heard my, parent, my dad or any of my uncles and refer to her as that, but it was very kind nonetheless. The problem with us when we have died to sin is when we keep remembrances of our former life around, when we keep Memories, keepsakes, phone numbers, search histories. We romanticize that life that we used to live. We think on the easy times, not the challenges that we had when we used money, sex, and power to our own advantages, when we could spend all of our money on ourselves, which still sounds really good uh, as a, a married guy with kids who likes to just buy stuff for himself. But we sacrificially give now to our kids and to others around us so that we are not just selfish, right? We use sex differently, not just to please our own desires, but so in such a way that reminds us how we are bound to someone in covenantal marriage. We use power differently that uplifts people rather than pushes them down, these remembrances that we keep around, often we think of our signs of life. Arcade Fire, though, beautifully sings it and says, we're looking for signs of life, looking for signs every night, but there's no signs of life. But we do it again. Every night we go out looking for signs of life, and yet we don't see it and experience in the places that we used to be able to find them before Christ. What are those signposts that you keep to the life you are now dead to in Christ? What, does it need, what do you need to do to be able to remind yourself on a daily, on an hourly, maybe a moment-by-moment -moment basis that if you are in Christ, that old life has been left behind and there is a new life waiting for you again? Death is the first step in the dance of repentance but it's not the last. The second step is resurrection. 
Look at verses 5 through 11 with me. Again, Paul writes, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. The second step of this dance of repentance is resurrection. Paul continues his logic. If we have died with Christ, Christ was resurrected and we will be resurrected with him. And it's this death from sin that is guaranteed in Christ's resurrection. That's what comes with it. Because Christ didn't stay in the tomb, we also don't stay in the tomb. We too are united to Christ. The word here, we are united to Christ in his resurrection as well. The word here that Paul uses is grafted. Grafted is a gardening practice. It means joined together. Grafting is the process by which you can trick a tree and put different, you can splice different branches onto it so that it grows these branches itself. There was a Syracuse professor named Sam Van Aken who has grafted 40 different stoned fruits to one tree. Most of the year, it just looks like a normal tree, but in the spring and summertime, when it blooms, it has a myriad of colors on it, from white to pink and red and purple and blue, representing all the different fruits that he has grafted onto it. It's absolutely stunning. And in this news article, he points out that pastors use it for an illustration. I mean, how could we not, right? The reporter quips, well, there is something biblical to it. And Sam replies, I liken it to the tree of life. It's the beginning of the story. Our stories, our lives often begin anew in transition. We can become a new person once we leave high school, right? And go off to college. We can become a new person when we move halfway across the country and find ourselves in a new city. We can become a new person when we just change our, own, our apartments and we have to develop new rhythms and patterns of life. I do think that there is no greater grafting together, no bigger transition in our lives, though, at, than marriage. Right? When you're single, you get to make all your own decisions. You don't have to consult with anyone because there's no one to consult with. Your buddies call you 10 minutes before a show starts and you go see the show because you don't have to ask anyone permission, right? I asked myself and myself said, yes, I'm going to the show tonight. When you're married, it's a different story. I'll call, say, a buddy of mine will call me a week before a show and I'll say, I don't know, I have to, call, I have to ask Stacy. We have to check dinner schedules. We have to 
run down the lists of events the week before and the week after. We have to coordinate bedtime routines and, and wonder about the laundry and the moon phases and tide schedules. And we do all of these things, right, because we love the other person. We're connected to them. And it's no longer us just making our own decisions. We've joined our lives to another's. Their story is our story. We receive their family history, perhaps their inheritance, holiday plans, traditions, some things you get whether you want it or not. It's yours. It's, <laughs> it is what you take on. And the same is true when you live a life of repentance through faith in Jesus Christ. By the power of the Holy Spirit, the, the story, the life of Jesus becomes yours. So much so that this power, this Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead now lives and moves in you as well. You are no longer your own. You belong to Jesus. His life is lived out through yours. Sin has lost its power over you, and the Holy Spirit reigns. In verse 11, we see Paul's first exhortation in the book of Romans. It took him a while. Usually it doesn't take him that much time. But he says in verse 11, So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Such a small word, consider. In the South, we would say reckon. Reckon yourselves dead to sin. Reckon yourselves alive to Christ. Consider how his life has become your own. Consider what needs to change. Consider how his peace, his patience, his kindness, that kindness that led us to repentance in the, in the very beginning, now lives and reigns and dwells in you. What still needs to change in your life? What anger are you holding on to? What anxiety still grabs you in your life? How are we released from our own family history so that we no longer have to carry on the sins that has plagued generations and generations before us? And we can live in the newness of life in our own families. Consider the resurrected life that you have. Resurrection is the second step in the dance of repentance. The third step is life. Look at what Paul says in verses 20, or excuse me, 12 through 14. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace." What does the resurrected life look like? Paul says, don't let your bodies obey your sinful passions anymore. Don't be instruments of unrighteousness, but be instruments of righteousness. There are two key words here, passions and instruments. 
Passions is often uh, a word that uh, otherwise means lust, but that is not the meaning of it here. The literal meaning of it is over-desires, that which we desire more than we should. And, and this is something that could be for both very good things as well as very evil things. The problem with over-desires is when we desire something more than we should, we typically place them in the place of God. And the question becomes, how bad do you want it? How bad do you want this or that thing? Because the thing about idols is they, they work, at least for a little bit. When we first begin to worship that thing, whether it's work or family or kids or relationships, whatever it may be, and those are all very good things properly ordered. But when we begin to worship those things, when we begin to over-desire them, we first get what we want. But as time goes on, they begin to ask more and more from us. They begin to demand more of our lives. Work, for example. We start, we work hard, we're excited about it. Our boss sees that excitement. He rewards us. He gives us a little more money. He gives us a little more time off, whatever it may be. He asks a little bit more of us. Oh, and we're excited to get a little bit more um, uh, projects, to have a little bit more responsibility in what, what we're doing. Then slowly he doesn't give us any more rewards for it. He just asks more of it. Hey, can you work a couple more hours? Can you come in on Saturday? Can you do this trip for me? Can you take on this extra project? And suddenly we see that our whole lives are consumed by work and we don't have time for anything else. If we worship work, if work's an over-desire and that, that, that importance that we feel, if we get our self-worth from it, we're going to continue to pour and pour and pour our lives into it until it has our entire lives and we have nothing else. So how do we know? How do we know if something's become an over-desire? Well, we look at our emotions. What do you get enraged about when it's threatened? What destroys your sense of self-worth when it's taken away? What depresses you? What makes you feel like you're failing at life? What paralyzes with fear when it's threatened to be taken away? Fear, worry, sadness, anger, these are all normal emotions that God has given us that we should feel on a regular basis. But when we are gripped by them, when we are paralyzed by them, when something threatens to take them away, that's when we can know that this or that thing has become an idol. That's our clue to dig a little deeper. That's a clue to begin to listen to our hearts a little bit more. We should listen to our hearts because that second word that Paul gives us, instruments, he says, become instruments for righteousness. Instead of being consumed by our passions. Paul says, or excuse me, this word for instruments can also mean weapon. And in the right hands, instruments can be weapons, right? We've all listened to someone pick up an instrument for the very first time. Especially like a violin, it just grates against everything that you know to be good and holy, but when someone picks up a violin who's a master at it, and they play, and it echoes through the room and the house, and it seeps deep into your heart to give you life, that's what being an instrument of righteousness 
means. That's the resurrected life that we can have with the instruments God has given us and that we would spread this life-giving music. Kurt Vonnegut said, If I should ever die, God forbid, let this be my epitaph. The only proof he needed for the existence of God was music. Victor Hugo said, Music expresses that which cannot be put into words and that which cannot remain silent. Nietzsche, of all people, said, And those who were seen dancing were thought to be insane by those who could not hear the music. What music does God want to play in your life? What music do you need to hear in your life? What over-desires need to be dealt with? What idols need to be destroyed by the weapon of God's grace so that you can take up and become an instrument of God's grace? This dance, this life of repentance, this life lived in the midst of of transition is done by continually taking the steps of death, resurrection, and life. It's continually dying to your sins, of considering yourself united to Christ in his resurrection and giving yourselves over to become instruments of righteousness, to play the music that God has given you to play. iTunes is dead, I understand. But do you remember when Apple figured out how to make gapless music? It was in 2006 with the release of iTunes 7. And there was this problem that digital music always had, is that they were, all the tracks were broken up into separate files, and there was time that needed to be taken to jump between track one and track two and track three. And even on the CDs, I remember it would have almost a space built in between, and it would, it would count down negative three, negative two, negative one, and then the new track would start. Well, iTunes and, and Steve Jobs and Apple, they knew that this isn't necessarily how music was created to be. Tracks were often, albums were often created to be this thing that runs together so that there is no space in between them. But this digital format was a problem for them. So instead, what they decided to do, instead of changing the way CDs and digital music was made, they decided to change the software. And they created a millisecond of crossover between the tracks that were being played. So that as just as the first track was ending, the second track would be starting even before it was over. There would be overlap. There would be crossfade between them. That transition was still there, but it was hidden in the software. In our Christian life of repentance... The transition is still there. Death, resurrection, and life all crossfade over one another. Some of us may still hear one track playing while the other one is beginning. But rest assured, this means that God is playing a new track in you. That you are doing the dance of repentance to a song of grace that will never fade away. And will continue into eternity.
Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your, for your grace. Thank you for loving us, though we don't deserve it. Thank you for loving us, though we were still dead. Thank you for, as our lives were dry and we felt like there was no place to go, you came and you met us in the wilderness, in the desert, in the dryness of our own lives. And you breathed into us that life, that power that raised Jesus from the dead. Help us to remember that. Help us to remember that all the time. Help us to consider that as we face great transitions in our lives, as we wonder about where we're going and what we're doing, as we wonder about how we can become instruments of your grace. Help us to make music for you. Help us to dance in front of other people so they think we're insane just because they can't hear the music. And help us to share that music. Help us to invite other people into this life, into this dance as well. We pray these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.